Welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. My guest today is Ron Daniels, who's the president of Johns Hopkins University and the author of a new book, What Universities Owe Democracy, which is a great title. I'll be honest that when I opened a book by someone leading a university right now, my expectations were relatively low, I think given the, the political constraints that they typically operate under. Uh, I actually rather like the quote that I got from Ron's book from the builder of the University of California system, Clark Kerr, who described the modern university as, quotes, a series of individual faculty entrepreneurs held together by a common grievance over parking. But Daniel's book really surprised me uh, and, and impressed me. It's a, uh, a deep history of the relationship between higher education and democracy and what that means for our current uh, situation. And he does so from the position of having been a reforming leader or, of higher education institutions himself. In the book and in our conversation, he out, outlines four main contributions that universities make to, to democracy. Social mobility, helping to create uh, more opportunity for people. Democratic education, the production of knowledge, and uh, what he calls dialogue across difference. We spend quite a bit of time on his decision at Hopkins quietly at first, but then proudly to end the practice of legacy preference in uh, admissions, which is becoming a hot topic again, uh, and what he thinks the prospects are that more colleges and universities will will follow follow suit, and the general issue of how to do college admissions in a way that's fair. Um, we also talk about the need for more openness and humility in academic research, especially given the reproducibility crisis that so many disciplines uh, have had, the ways in which we can promote what he calls purposeful pluralism, including fostering more debates rather than just lectures at universities, and, and the importance of something even apparently so trivial as roommates, and whether those are chosen at random uh, or whether people get to to select them. And so uh, we co cover a wide range of topic and really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you do too. Ron Daniels, welcome to Dialogues. Thank you for joining me. Thrilled to be here. Look forward to our conversation today. Well, me too. I really, I really enjoyed your book, and thank you for taking time out from the busy job of running Johns Hopkins to to write an important book with the provocative title, "What Universities Owe Democracy." And we're going to get into some of the some of the specifics of what you think universities owe democracy and the challenges of delivering on those. Um, we'll get into legacy preferences, how you teach citizenship, uh, and much more. Um, but just to situate you, for listeners, uh, you open the book actually with a story about your own your own background as a, the the son of Jewish refugees to Canada and then to the US. So how what's the story? How did you how did you end up here, if you like? Sure. Um, well, um, you know, every family has uh, a story, uh, the foundational story, often that explains uh, the you know the character of their values and. Uh, and and priorities and for me um i was very much um our our story was very much framed by the way in which my dad came to canada he was a young boy age seven he and his two siblings uh, along with his parents left uh warsaw poland uh, as jewish refugees in march 1939 and uh, they came to canada and of course uh, just a few months later the second world war would uh, would start and and the Holocaust, of course, that ensued, and you know I think for uh, for my father 
know, trying to make sense of uh, how he came to Canada, his great good fortune and being able to make his way to the new world was, uh, was very much uh, something that uh, dogged him for his entire life trying to understand that. And I think what was particularly important was that uh, he was one of only 4,500 Jewish refugees that the Canadian government uh, admitted to Canada from the period 1933 to 1945. Indeed, at, um, at one point towards the end of the Second World War, when a senior Canadian official was asked how many Jews the Canadian government intended to admit to Canada, he said, quote, none is too many. And so, you know, I think that experience um, which, of course, at one level uh, uh, is uh, shaped by the failure of, of, of German democracy, of Weimar democracy, and, and what ensued in Europe um, is important in terms of underscoring the fragility of democracy. Um, but it also, um, of course, um, takes um, some definition from the uh, role that the Canadian government played um, in admitting refugees during that time. And the Canadian government's record was among the worst of the industrialized democracies. And so, you know, I think together, you know, uh, this, this became an important um, influence on how one thinks about uh, the foundational role that democracies can play. And even once democracies are established, you know, the sense of the hard work that needs to be done to enrich them and ensure that they're meeting the aspirations that are associated with their foundation. So in any event, um, I grew up in Canada. Um, so interesting. Sorry to interrupt. I mean, actually, I didn't know that Canada had such a dismal record yeah. uh, on that. And actually, so I think I was pretty instructive. And also, it's also striking to me how many kind of liberal intellectuals, I use that phrase very generally, were refugees of one kind or another and and so i do think there's a sense in which the the experience of the fragility of democracy and the dark side of failing does seem to have influenced a number of intellectuals and so i would put you in the same that sort of same camp as many people you know Karl popper and isaiah berlin and so on were very very much of that of that mindset too but i think inflected by that family history Absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, I was one generation removed, but it's still it was so it was so uh, omnipresent um, in in my uh, childhood, just, you know, just growing up in the in the shadows of us in the sense of the near miss that my dad was constantly cognizant of all the family that had been lost. And it was a sense that um, it was really um, serendipitous. It was serendipitous, fortuitous as to how he made his way to Canada. And so, again, I think this was a very powerful uh, um, frame for understanding the importance of democracy and a well-functioning democracy. And, again, the hard work that needs to be done to uh, preserve and enhance it. Yeah. So, in you, event, so you, grew, you grew up Canadian. So you're Canadian. You grew up in Canada. I'm Canadian. Like, Canada. Yeah, and so and and actually, just to just to finish this part of the story in terms of of sort of core influences, what is also uh, so uh, important for me was the extent to which, for my dad and his two older siblings, going to university um, changed everything for them, and the extent to which that um, that experience uh, gave him not only. Um, uh, 
professional livelihood, but also just the kind of status and membership in Canadian society mm -hmm. that was so instrumental to the uh, comforts that we, and, and, and I'm not just speaking of myself and my siblings, but all my cousins that we grew up with, we knew that the university was the crucial transformative agent in what had uh, given us so much. So I think these, a lot of these ideas find their way into the book in terms of explaining why it is that I really sought to link uh, the role of the university with democracy. Yeah, you're very much, uh, you know, you're, I made a note at some point about you being an institutionalist, you sort of believing in the power of these institutions to shape, frame and, and defend democracy. And you yourself, so if I understand it correctly, you, you went to college in Canada, you then switched over to, to the US, you've been a student, professor, you were at Penn, provost at Penn, and then you took over, when did you take over in Hopkins? Was it 10 years ago? Uh, 2009. 2009. Okay, so yeah, then you've 2009. been running Hopkins for a while. So you're 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 a university person to your bones. Would that be Absolutely. Uh, so you know this is I've you know I've now spent decades uh, as student faculty member and academic leader and in, in an institution that I love very deeply. And again, you know, as 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 I said a moment ago, has been so important to me and and to my family in terms of uh, giving us uh, a. Know, uh, lives that uh, would have been unimaginable but for that experience. So you you talk, uh, I think, in 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 some ways, it's very highfalutin, the prose sometimes, but I understand why linking universities and liberal democracy, I'll quote you here, you say, the fates of higher education and liberal democracy are deeply, inextricably intertwined. And so you, you're making a foundational argument here which we'll get into. And you, you make the case both in a positive sense, which I think we'll get to in a moment in terms of their role in social mobility and democracy and so on. But you also make it in a negative sense. You point out that you can judge how important universities are to democracy by how autocrats treat them. And you have this very nice story about the Central right. uh, European University and uh, what happened there and also with Erdogan and so on. So can, can you say a little bit about that, the both historically and in contemporary terms, how autocrats have treated universities? I think that negative argument is quite interesting. Right. I think it's really instructive that when you think about often the targets of autocrats or would-be autocrats, it's, it's so interesting to see the extent to which the university is very much or very much trained in their sites. Um, and the and the uh, description that I include in the book is the experience that I have as part of a review team that uh, was going to essentially uh, reaccredit Central European University in Budapest. And um, this is the university, of course, that was started by George Soros and was really meant to be a beacon for Western liberal values rooted in the heart of Eastern Europe and was created following the follow the Berlin Wall. And, and it was so interesting that um, I was there just following um, a recent election uh, uh, in which Orban uh, uh, just targeted. It was central to his election to target uh, the workings of this one relatively small institution in Hungary. And so it really gave me pause and in and, and, and seeing the extent to which this institution and the idea that it represented was so deeply threatening to uh, 
to Orban, um, uh, who, you know, by his by his own admission is is an illiberal Democrat. Um, and and then it started, you know, at least for me to um, uh, rem- you know, to uh, remind me of the number of other countries that I had visited over the years in which you know, one could quickly unearth stories of how um, autocrats typically targeted early on in their leadership university. So the fact that um, leaders who are so clearly um, anti-liberal um, in, um, in their convictions, that they um, have this recurrent pattern of first and foremost going after intellectuals in universities provides a really interesting uh, example of of the importance that universities must play in in holding them to account and checking their role. And I think that in some sense is, is again, part of the foundation upon which I build in trying to really interrogate this issue of, well, what exactly is the relationship of the university to democracy? We know that universities don't do well in um, non-democratic settings, but let's let's play it the other way. How do universities actually contribute to the success of democracies? And that and and that was an account that I really uh, wanted to be able to uh, build out in the in the book. Yes, yes, you make the argument not just that universities need democracy, but but vice versa. Uh, and it's I was actually just I'm reading Bonhoeffer, one of bi- a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer right now. And it's very interesting, in, in, you know, under under Hitler, just the even the seminaries were driven underground. And I think you describe the Polish universities having to be kind of on the run, basically these exactly. sort of mobile. And, and it was the same in um, in Nazi Germany, uh, of course, too. But it's interesting the the use of the word liberal here, I think, is important because you, you, I think you do a really nice job of deconstructing the differences between liberalism and democracy, and how they can how they're related but not the same. But when we talk about the threat that universities pose to autocrats as liberal institutions, that that makes perfect sense. They're they're about free speech, they're about knowledge production, they're about engagement, they're about dissent and challenge and so on. But in the US now, the idea of, you know, if you use liberal in the American sense of the term, as sort of left-leaning progressive, et cetera, that is now being used as a, this is the liberal elite. And, and when Trump and the people like that, and you see, you cite the statistics about how Republicans don't like universities anymore, they're meaning liberal in that other sense. And there I sometimes find the colleges to be a bit more culpable, actually, that actually if they are seen by m- many people as bastions of left-wing or progressive thought, rightly or wrongly, but unfortunately somewhat rightly, then that's a different kind of liberalism, right? And so I think you're arguing that universities need to be liberal in the first sense, but not make the mistake of becoming liberal in the sense of being partisan. Is that a fair summary of your position? Yeah, I, I, and Richard, I really do appreciate you um, emphasizing that uh, clarification of the different uses of the term liberal. And in fact, you know, there are several uh, folks with whom I uh, I've talked about the ideas in this book, and when I talk about the case for liberal democracy, I say, "Do you really have to use? Do you really have to use liberal <laughs> L- to modify democracy?" L- because again, L-word. it imports yeah. It, yeah, the L word, and it you know, and, and connotes pr- progressive commitments and so forth. But here, clearly, as as you've described, I mean this in the in the traditional sense that what we're really talking about is the idea 
that as much as democracy speaks to majoritarian rule and popular sovereignty, the idea of liberalism is one of constraint, that we are actually are thinking about how we protect individual flourishing, individual dignity, and that uh, there are moments where, for very good reasons, we want to put limitations on what majoritarian will can do, and particularly vis-a-vis the protection of individual rights, minority rights. Um, so I, I, that's an important idea. And, it, in, and again, often in uh, liberal democracies, we see that these two ideas coalesce and uh, complement each other nicely, but there are moments when they're in tension. Uh, but I think the, the, the fundamental takeaway is that when we look at the, um, the success of Western democracies, that success, I think, is very much a byproduct of the linkage of these two ideas together. And, and, and I think has contributed so much to not just the material advancement of these societies, but uh, their uh, moral uh, development as well. Yeah, thank you. Right, let's dive into the four things that universities sure. uh, do for democracy. The number one is social mobility that help to co- help create the next elite, if you like, but in a, mer- in a meritorious way. You're pretty damning of the US higher education system in ways that music to my ears, in terms of my own work on it as well, you point out that the top 40 universities take more from the top 1%, etc. So this is reasonably well established now that because of the way that selection is done into those universities and the way that the system works is it reproduces inequality as much as it disrupts it. So I think you you lay all that case out very well, drawing on all all the, the right work. But it's a deep problem, it seems to me, because the very nature of a selective university like yours, me, you're, you're selecting on something. And so this idea of what you're selecting, we'll get to legacies in a moment, don't, don't worry, But because uh, I really want to talk about that. But, but just leave legacies aside for a moment, or athletes or all that weird stuff. It's like if you select on SAT or even GPA, you're going to get the rich kids because the rich kids have got higher SATs and GPAs. And so you're meritocratic in the narrow sense because you're letting in the, the best prepared, but the best prepared because of everything that happens in the 18 years prior are disproportionately rich. And so to some extent, right. isn't it, it's just embedded in the system. How do you, and it's one of the reasons why I think you don't wanna completely get rid of SATs and so on. So tell me how you think about the idea of meritocracy in college admissions, if your goal is to promote social mobility, because that's, people would say it is meritocratic, but it can be meritocratic without being pro-mobility, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, you're really putting the thumb on a very important set of issues, and I know you've written and thought about this a lot uh, as well. So I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, hearing your your thoughts on 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 this. Um, but look, we we know to start that um, as much as we talk about the peculiarities of American higher education and in particular um, elite private education in the United States, which is just these are remarkable institutions doing remarkable things in terms of the kinds of intellectual um, uh, uh, capital that um, that students uh, take from their experience here in terms of the research enterprise, the impact that it has on um, American indeed global society. I mean, we these are remarkable institutions. And they are, as 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 you've indicated, uh, disproportionately populated by students who come from privilege. But I think this is an important point. And again, coming from Canada, um, I I can say this with some authority. The truth is that's not just an American artifact. Um, universities globally are typically disproportionately populated by 
uh, students who come from families of privilege. It was true in Canada. It's true in Western Europe. It's true whether we're talking about private institutions or public institutions, um, even with very you know institutions that have very low levels of tuition in the European or um, Latin American model, they still find that there is disproportionate representation from high-income families uh, within them. So, you know, this is this is important point because it need, we need to broaden the discussion. Is this solely about the particular features of uh, private institutions in the United States? But having said that, you know, you then. You know, seems to me that when we describe what we want to do and we see ourselves as institutions that are meritocratic in character, we're, we're committed to excellence. We're committed to this idea that we want to recruit the very best students and faculty to our institutions and give them unrivaled opportunities for their intellectual professionals uh, advancement. But we want to do this on the basis of being able to identify and recruit the very best students. And as you say, you then inevitably confront this issue of, but when you're thinking of the very best, you're um, looking at quality of education the students have received, the kinds of life experiences they have. And again, knowing that there's any of a number of issues pre-university uh, that will perfectly reflect um, the advantages of birth, whether it's having a two-parent family, um, the quality of neighborhoods you're in, your uh, educational opportunities, your summer opportunities, the level of intellectual stimulation you get at home, the, just the security you grow up with. So, so we know that there is this, that, that at some level, our definitions of, of merit mm. get tied to all the advantages, the, the kind of upbringing that students will have. And I think in the past, that has meant that we, on a very narrow definition, I, I think replicate this pattern of over-representation from families of wealth and advantage. I think we've gotten better, though, at, again, being true to the idea of merit, but, but getting smarter at how we think about capability of mm -hmm. demonstrated achievement of you know of, of being able to discern aspiration to be members of a university community and so you know to the extent for instance that um, our admissions programs are now um, and I think uh, becoming more holistic in taking a look at entry scores looking at GPAs, but also looking at uh, the circumstances in which uh, our applicants have grown up and, and the kinds of and the kinds of challenges that they've overcome. And, and, and as we understand or are better able to document that, I think we become more likely to be able to uh, be um, less bound to these practices, which have had a disparate impact on on certain groups. Now, having said all that, it's not that this is easy, easy. This is easy to do because, again, you know, the history of American higher education, in particular, was that when one one used holistic entry criteria, yes. I was um, just about to say, you know, it actually heavy. took yeah. us into a place where there was the this gave perfect license 
to self-replicate the elites who were then dominant in higher education. And it took the creation of the SAT um, in particular and entry scores to be able to weigh against that. So, you know, we're, these things are intention. And I will finally say, you know, my home country of Canada, where the admission process to university is so wholly different from what we see in the United States, there is no uh, SAT, there is no ACT that you know students write. You're basically admitted on the on the on uh, your uh, last two years of high school, and there we've seen that again families of privilege are able to move their kids to private high schools where they're assured high grades that will then allow them to, um, to again, uh, perform well in that system. So whatever you, it, what it, mean, is, it is, it is, it's complex. Whatever you do. So I'm from the UK, so I can, you know, the UK is the same uh, in terms of many of its outcomes. The thing, the, so I, I always react badly. I think for the same reasons you and people say holistic. Um, but maybe I now need to get used to that. There's bad holistic admissions and good holistic admissions. So bad holistic admissions, and you talk about this in the book, was when there were too many Jewish students getting into the IVs. And so we had to introduce a more holistic thing, which took into account character and all this kind of exactly. bullshit. Basically, which was basically just a bullshit way of saying there are too many Jews. Like, let's get, and they were open about it, right? And that's when legacy preferences came in. So we'll talk about that. But, but, um, says, so I get, you know, I get it makes me shudder when people say holistic. But on the other hand, you're quite right that there can be good holistic, which I would say is really what in the UK we called contextual data. And I worked on this in the government in the UK. And you know, I was very proud that one day my boss, who was the deputy prime minister of the UK, was described on the front page of our most right-wing newspaper as a communist for what we were doing in college admissions. Because what we're doing is using contextual data. And what that means is basically what the college board were trying to do with their so-called adversity right. score, which is to say, look, an SAT score of 1,300 from my kid, upper middle class kid in Bethesda, Maryland, is not the same as a 1,300 SAT score from a kid in Baltimore, right? Two blocks from where you are now. So right. let's find a way to adjust the SATs and maybe the GPAs. For, and that's, so that's basically what the UK tries to do. And it treats Bs as As if the B is from a poor kid. And, and that, so I guess I'm looking for a mechanical way <laughs> to be fairer and not retreat to holistic because I don't trust these institutions to use holistic. I trust you, Ron, right? And, you. and you've got the numbers to prove it, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you've, you've got the but, numbers in here. But, like when you arrive, 12.5% legacies, 9% Pell. Now it's 4% legacy, 20% Pell, right? So I, I, I trust, but I don't, I, I'm not sure trust, personal trust about the, the holistic is enough, is it? So, and I, I think this is where the kind of um, uh, transparency that we're seeing now in terms of reporting out the percentage of uh, Pell eligible students and the kind of scrutiny that's coming with that, that's really helpful in terms of creating a culture, I think, of accountability so that we know that if we use these uh, more holistic uh, practices, they don't become perverted into something that becomes very anti-egalitarian in, in character. But but there's but there's no easy and precise formula. And that's and that's ultimately this is where there has to be uh, some level of discretion that is accorded to the admissions offices to work through these tensions as to how do you think about when it's appropriate to have heavy reliance on these scores, when you need to 
um, when you need to look to other indicia of performance and so forth. But um, but I think it is possible um, to be able to make this work. And again, you know, having overseen uh, an admissions program here at Hopkins for a decade plus, you know, um, I, 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 I feel confident that uh, this is not an invitation to caprice, but I think there is a principled way, a structured way in which you can uh, prosecute a, 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 a program that truly is um, aligned with the ideal of merit that should govern uh, admission to and participation in 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 an institution like ours. But that's an, important. to my but mind, that's an okay thing to say and to feel quite proud of. Hmm. It's that you're trying to recruit the very best. It's just a question of um, opening up your aperture and um, to how you think about um, what it means to be the very best and the kind of aptitudes that are being demonstrated given these really uh, stark disparities in resources that are available to uh, support the growth and development of students before they apply to university. Yeah, I, I love the way you put that, um, The ap- opening up the aperture to think about what it means to be the best. I think that's right. That's exactly where we have to, to land. Let's talk about legacies because that's actually in the news right now, Amherst just moved away there's a bit of a campaign around legacies i've written about this and many others and there's that wonderful kallenberg book affirmative action for the rich so you came in as a a canadian having been through the relatively simple canadian admissions system i think there's a great um a great malcolm gladwell new yorker piece about comparing admissions in canada (laughs) to the u.s i I remember that piece vividly because we both were at university of toronto about the same time and we both had a very similar experience in terms of how relatively uneventful um and uh and simple our um, application process was to an ontario-based university so it it, it really in in very stark contrast to uh to the united states it's a brilliant piece it's like you're talking 30 minutes on a tuesday evening and it's similar in the uk like you're so i did mine in about five minutes on a wednesday morning in my homeroom class and that was it and and never told my parents where i was applying we didn't do any there were no essays to right and and we never did any visits it was just like um i know, you know the, it was the that amount simple of, the amount of effort uh, is anyway so you probably had a bit of whiplash so you get you, you then inherit um the leadership role in the institution that does have legacy preferences and then you get you get rid of legacy preferences in 2015 i guess um 2014 or 15 2015. um and so i guess it, and then you but you seem to have done it quietly uh, you don't seem to have said anything about it till 2019. So I guess the three questions are like, one, what drove you either personally or professionally to be a really early mover on this issue? Number two, why did you do it so quietly? And was that part of its success? Um, uh, and, and number three, what kind of reaction have you had from people? Where do you think we're going on that? So I guess, so you know, number one is like, why did, what, what led you to, to want to get into this in the first place, lots of people say, "Oh, I'd love to do it, but I can't." And you just, you just, you apparently just did it. Is it because you're Canadian? So I think, it, I, th- I think, uh, you know, uh, coming from outside the country, uh, you really are, you are really struck um, by how truly 
idiosyncratic legacy admissions are um, in higher education. You know, in, in Canada, and as I describe in the book, um, I, uh, for a decade, was the head of um, a wonderful law school and was seen to be at the uh, uh, the top of the pecking order in Canada. And, you know, we um, would, um, you know, routinely get um, requests from alumni and others um, to have some kind of preference uh, for uh, their children at the admissions process, and um, and 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 it was so clearly understood that that those factors would play no role whatsoever in our process. And and, and in fact, you know, when when people would ask me, um, you know, how how can I do this? Uh, what can I do to be able to get serious attention for my child? I would say, don't bother. There is there is no way in which I can which I can be helpful to you. And indeed, even if I were to get close to the admissions office, uh, that would have the almost certain effect of damaging rather than enhancing the case for uh, uh, for your child. So there was a clear understanding that this that 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 the um, uh, status of legacy. Uh, was to play no role whatsoever in admission to the law school. And, and in fact, you know, there's a story that I describe in, um, in one of the things I've uh, written um, about a, a, a testy exchange that I had with someone who was a legacy and, and, and a donor to the law school. Yeah, it's in the book. Who, it's in the book. Who, who at, you know, one point uh, you know, is interested in trying to uh, uh, get some advantage for his child in the admissions process. And I say, I just, I can't do that. And, uh, and that would just be completely antithetical to what the law school is all about. And more than that, um, uh, practically, I can't, I, I, I can't get close to the office. So it's, it's a no. And the, his reply to that was, um, well, you know, you've been really trying to make the law school stronger and seeing yourself as among the great law schools of the world. And if you want to um, be understood as an Ivy League institution, why don't you start acting as one? Meaning, why don't you let, take legacy preferences into kid, account? Meaning, let my kid in. Yeah. Right. And that was, and that was just so interesting how natural that was for him to invoke that practice as being something that was seen to be integral to his understanding of the kind of compact that existed between Ivy League institutions and their alumni. So, you know, when I when I when I when I came here um, to Hopkins, and um, and again, you know, have, have been influenced by your writing and Richard Kallenberg's writing. And you know, I, I um, I'm married to someone who um, you know has has several times said to me, you know, in describing legacy programs, oh yeah, you know, affirmative action for kids who have had every advantage in life. Um, you know, it just seemed to me that as we as you think about. Um, what kind of institution you are and how particularly you want to honor these ideas of, of merit and of equal opportunity. It seems to me, and particularly coming from outside the country where this is such an unusual practice on an international scale, it just seemed to me that this was something that 
that really had to go, that it seems wholly anachronistic, and particularly in a moment where, as you and others have written, we're thinking um, uh, more broadly about these questions of persistent inequality and the extent to which inherited privilege, now albeit through the conferral of education credentials, but really is inimical to ideas of merit and to, um, and to equal opportunity. And so it just seemed to me that um, that uh, this uh, work to uh, better align the university with what I believe are the true values that, that at least as a foreigner had always stirred me about the United States. Um, it seemed to me that this was a practice that just had to go. So fast forward, um, we did it with, um, you know, very quietly. Uh, obviously, my uh, trustees were aware of what we were doing and we were reporting uh, this, reporting the progress out. But um, we did it uh, for a few years, largely on a quiet basis, largely because um, I wasn't entirely sure uh, of uh, whether we would be able to uh, sustain the practice and thought it was better to, to demonstrate that we could do this um, and, um, and, and at the same time uh, see that it didn't damage the institution in other uh, material respects. And for those, um, uh, alums who during this time were reaching out to the institution and saying what happened uh, when uh, their kids didn't get admitted and they may have felt that um, that you know were the legacy program to uh, to still be enforced they would have been we told them uh, we told them you know that this was this is something we were doing so we we, so we didn't do it completely so, by stealth we weren't doing were, it publicly you weren't advertising it you didn't advertise it you we didn't, didn't advertise out, it come out big. but you, but, you, but 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 the trustees knew and hmm. and the disappointed um, alums knew what was going on and you know at the end of the day when you ask the question what was the reaction when we uh, when we after a few years of having prosecuted this program and we and we publicly declared what we had done and the reasons for it. Um, what was interesting is to see the extent to which the uh, to the extent that, you, that we got um, reaction from our alumni. There were no doubt people who were uh, really uh, disappointed, in fact, uh, enraged. Uh, but the lion's share of 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 notes that we got were of the character of wow that's great you did that I'm proud to be at Hopkins an institution that would have the fortitude to do this and again particularly in this moment in America of understanding how this naked preference seemed to be solely at odds with the core ideas of this country. I can of course I agree with everything you've said and congratulations for doing it uh, and it's interesting to hear the history. When I speak to other people in your position in elite institutions that do practice legacies, very often the answer that I get it about this is that, look, I personally would prefer not to do this, but my alums, my development office, my trustees, et cetera, kind of won't allow it. Now, do you think that's about to change? Do you think the equilibrium that changed for you is going to, you were one of the first dominoes to fall, I think it'd be fair to say, and then you fell publicly looks like some other do, do you sense among your peers i'm not asking you to name names but yeah you, is there a movement here? I, yeah no i look i i can and then in part 
Um, this is why I wrote the book was in some sense to say, if we think about where we are in the United States right now and the growing sense that so many of us have about the fragility of our democracy and to see these kinds of naked practices that run against the grain of what we think the democratic idea is, it just seems to me that um, that, that lends urgency to tackling issues like the revocation of legacy preferences. And so, you know, I do see, um, uh, you know, first in terms of the decision that uh, my colleague uh, Biddy Martin made at Amherst to uh, be the next institution mm-hmm. to uh, decide to repudiate a legacy preference program. I do see uh, some encouraging signs. I mean, the truth was, it's been uh, more than a few years now that we declared that we were no longer legacy and it didn't seem that it was having much effect. Uh, the fact that Amherst has moved is, in, is, is important. Um, I think it's also instructive that um, there are now um, students and alumni who are starting to coalesce around uh, uh, advocating for these reforms. And, and, you know, like the conversations you've had with uh, university pre- presidents, I've had similar ones where, you know, there's, there's very few university presidents who will look you squarely in the eye and say, this is a really good practice that if we were if we were designing our institutions from scratch, we would for sure build in a legacy program. It's a really good thing to do is as we right. speak of meritocratic admissions requirements, we should really add you know, a clear legacy preference that just continues to build an advantage for, uh, as my wife says, kids who have had every advantage in life. And I put my own kids in that category. Um, and, and so you know that there, that there's, there's, yeah, you know, uh, um, very um, little support in principle for the continuation of this practice. And instead, what it bumps up against is the hard realities of the politics um, within within universities and um, alumni pressure and trustees that seem to subvert the movement. But you know, here I'm just I'm hopeful that people will um, be sensitive to the moment that we're in in the United States and to the extent that there is a strong critique of universities and 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 as people articulate in a more fulsome way things that they find arresting about what we do to the extent that that this naked preference program is part of that then I think it really does you know create um, a you know a compelling reason for us fixing this now yes. Yeah, I agree. Actually, there is, as you say, there's this campaign, and I'll link to it in the show notes, where you can actually, kind of, as an alumni, use your your voice. And I'm very interested, I'm writing a bit now about how social norms change around these issues. So how something right. comes from being just everyone does it to it's just not done. Uh, and how I'm using the example of legacy preferences in the UK for Oxford and Cambridge as an example of how norms, post-war norms, just shifted. It The law didn't change. It was just the, the social norms change. And I agree, because I think one of the problems here is that there are lots of criticisms being made of elite universities that are unfair. Um, but it's really hard to defend those when some of them are completely fair, like a hereditary principle in admissions. So it actually just weakens the ability of these institutions to defend themselves against criticism, especially from the right, when they practice such out, outrageous policies. But we, we won't do justice to all the other parts of you, but I do, I do want to touch on it. Let's talk about an area where you haven't succeeded. 
lest, lest this become a little bit too congratulatory, um, which is the second part, the second um, role, I think within Hopkins anyway, which is the democratic education. And you've suggested that we should actually institute a democracy requirement for graduation. That's harder because we're split into disciplines and, and so on. Um, but then you admit very candidly that that is not something you've managed to do within your own institution, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Why? I, You're your legacy preferences, but you can't institute a democracy requirement? Like, what's happening? Um, it's a work in progress. Um, and again, we're having the conversation right now. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this, again, is another one of these ways in which as we think about the relationship between the university and democracy, you know, we talked about social mobility as being an important good that we provide and then that, that we can we, we can be such a powerful instrument in enhancing the level of social mobility. And we know that that just builds trust in the democratic project to, for people to be able to rise above the station of their parents. So that's one piece of it. This other piece um, that I talk about um, is the extent to which we know that, you know, the the um, challenges of being a citizen in a democracy are not trivial. It is, you know, democracy uh, calls for um, a, a very, I think, um, demanding set of commitments from its citizenry to be effective and um, and to ensure uh, not just the survival but the flourishing of democracy. And when one starts to think about, well, how do we produce democratic citizens? How do we how do we give our uh, young um, citizens a sense of the idea of democracy, what's in play, what are the institutions that frame the project, where do, where our aspirations have been uh, realized, where they haven't been. I mean, if, if we don't educate for this, this doesn't happen uh, just naturally. Yeah, it it requires yeah. concerted, intentional um, education. And, and this is where, um, remarkably, um, I think the American project falls short. And you know, the, the really striking uh, data point that I came across and doing uh, the work for this book was to see that only about 25% of students graduating from American high schools truly have any kind of serious grounding in American civics. And so, you know, here at a place like Hopkins, we're getting students who never have been exposed to a lot of what I just described a moment ago in terms of the ideal content of uh, of 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 uh, of, of an education and democracy. So this is just where I think it's so important that we um, are able to uh, provide that kind of exposure to our students and again, to get them ready for leadership upon graduation. We have done it in, in, in some modest ways at Hopkins in terms of uh, inserting exposure to ideas of democracy in our orientation program when first year students come. But ideally, and as I said, we're discussing this now, it, 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 um, I would really uh, love to see a core requirement that every student graduating from Hopkins has been exposed to these ideas and, um, and understands that democracy is not just about a certain set of techniques, but really have a, an intellectual appreciation of the nature of this enterprise and um, and their role in 
in, in something that is truly unusual and historic in its character to be part of something that's so precious. So um, I think it's I think it's I think it's an important priority. And just, and yet other institutions have moved in this direction, yes, and and that encourages me. You know, Mitch Purdue, Daniels at Purdue has Purdue, been at the yeah. at yeah. you know at the front lines of this is, and has really moved his institution along. And there's other examples at Stanford and Virginia um, where there are elements that are being built in the curriculum. So I I think this is possible. And again, I think it's imperative in this moment. I think part, one of the things you touch on, and this anticipates the the call for uh, positive, uh, pl- pl- purposeful pluralism that you talk about later. But I think you indicate that part of the problem here is agreeing what that what that curriculum should look like. If you go beyond just how does the government work and so on, the and this is I think does speak to the moment we're in now. So you you cite Locke and you cite John Stuart Mill, my subject. So I'm very happy, etc. But there's another group of people who will say, okay, so a bunch of dead white men who you know oversaw empires and had you know very odd views on certain things. Really, that's what you're going to teach? It gets close to the dead white men critique of classics and classical education. So it's like, uh, and that is not what we need right now. And real democracy is about something different. So how much of the problem is just getting agreement about what the core tenets of a liberal democracy are? Because as you said earlier, those tenets are themselves under criticism right now. Is, is that the problem or part of the problem? So, you know, I, I think one can, in fact, create a set of courses uh, where you could straddle between, on one hand, just unvarnished adulation, and on the other hand, uh, biting critique and cynicism about the nature of the democratic project in this country. And I, so I think there is a way to thread the needle. And I think you can have components where you can articulate the aspirations, how those aspirations were or were not met at the time of formation, how they've been challenged, how they've evolved, and to anticipate a lot of the criticisms and the failures along the way. So I, I think one can do this well. And the nice thing about a university is that um, you know, it may be that some universities could prescribe these standard course that would be taught in the same way for every student um, by, a, by a set of faculty members. I tend to think that, you know, the better way to go would be to, to challenge the faculty to come up with different approaches to how you thread the needle across all these uh, different um, uh, components and, and let a thousand flowers bloom. And I think that's possible. I think, but it starts so with a recognition that um, though, particularly at a place like Hopkins, we're loath to prescribe mandatory requirements for much of anything, there's just a, um, a moment here that really calls for calls this question of whether we can imagine generating students who are who are going into a society that is deeply riven, where you know we live through the trauma of January 6th and, you know, the extent to which um, we're, you know, we're seeing across the country moves around voter suppression and so forth, and that we could imagine generating them into that environment and not equipping them well for the kinds of responsibilities, particularly given the gifts of higher education. And so, again, I think this, 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 this requires us to, to uh, move out of any zone of complacency and say, we've got to double down. Yeah. Um, well, good luck. Good luck with that. So number three, and maybe this is one of the more obvious ones, is creating knowledge. Everyone think, you know, universe, colleges as knowledge creators. Um, and here you talk about 
uh, and checking power. Here you talk about the need for open science with guardrails. And I want to get to number four. So um, we won't do justice to this one, although I think it is a very nice discussion of the reproducibility crisis, how what the incentives are for publication and so on, which my colleague Jonathan Rausch has actually written about, and I've had him on, on here. It's a, and it's a terrific book. book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, Constitution Knowledge is a terrific book, and, yeah. I, and I'm really glad to see the attention it's getting. The same, same here, and I, I agree. I think it gets at some of the same issues that you you describe. But when you say yes. open science, um, can you just say a couple of sentences about what you what you mean by that? How opening up the academy would 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 actually improve the quality of science? Because I think that's counterintuitive to a lot of people. Like the experts are in the ivory towers, we know what we're doing, and then we'll tell you what we've done. You're actually advocating a much more open approach. What do you mean by that? So. There is a movement afoot within uh, within the scientific community to insist that more data, more of the uh, findings upon which uh, research uh, conclusions, recommendations, in the case of policy, um, more more of of that core um, information be shared publicly. In a lot of ways, I think there's an interesting analog to what media outlets have been doing over the last several years, or at least some of the more uh, mainstream and responsible outlets, where they really felt that in order to build trust in the nature of expertise in their um, institutions, it's important to show more of the work that they did upon which certain reportage is based. And I think, um, you know, here in the case of the university, to the extent to which we do have the significant problem with the fact that um, a non-trivial share of the science that is published in journals cannot be reproduced in subsequent exp- um, experiments that try and replicate the results. Again, if we're going to maintain this role as key sites for the guardianship of knowledge, for being able to check power, to hold hold actors, both public and private, to account, I think we really do have to be in a position to essentially show our methodology, show our data to work hard to demonstrate to the public that the findings that we're making are based on uh, a valid foundation. I agree. Um, and makes, so that's, 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 that's the, the short version, but I encourage people to read the long version as well as, as, well as John's book as well. One of my colleagues has, a, has an idea that the reviewers of journals should be split into the people that review the methodology without seeing the results. And then the people who, who review the results, because so you can say, is this a strong enough methodology? And so he's, otherwise there's a danger. that. And I actually think that idea is having separate reviewers is quite close, I think, to your instinct. I think it's a, really, it's a really clever idea. It's a really clever idea. And these are the kinds of discussions that, again, we ought to be having. But again, just recognizing that we're in a moment now where there's so much contestation about about what is a fact and what is true, that this is where, to the extent that we want to safeguard our role as a place, as a unique institution society, where these Mm. different claims around fact and truth are evaluated um, and um, confirmed, um, then this is, I think this is part and parcel of how we get better at this job, particularly in this environment. So number four, which I I really like, is purposeful pluralism. This is the fourth uh, thing that universities owe democracy, and you talk about dialogue across difference here. You know, drawing on some of the, the work we've just been talking about about the importance of engagement. The way I read this is you're is you're saying that engagement across differences is a vital part of being a liberal citizen and a vital role of universities. But that a bit like 
liberal citizens don't grow out of thin air. This doesn't happen by itself. It needs to be structured. It needs to some extent be managed for almost kind of forced. And the two examples that you give I'd like you to talk about are your roommates, the allocation of roommates. I found that fascinating. And then secondly, the sort of single teacher, single speaker model and how we should replace that with more of a kind of debate model. But let's let's start with the roommate thing, because I I think that highlights some of the tensions between wanting to attract students, but also to some extent, I'll I'll use the word forcing, like forcing people to engage across difference is sort of part of the mission too. And that includes whose room you're in. Right. So we know that coming to university, particularly when you're as uh, our, as a student, you leaving home and you take up residence in a university, we know that of course there's the core academic experience, which will be a, which obviously is one of the valuable takeaways from a university experience. But that's only part of a much broader experience, and of course being part of the um, community where particularly over the last several decades, we're assembling more and more interesting and diverse uh, student populations. And again, building up not just by race and ethnicity, but particularly with much greater attention, as we've discussed before, to socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. And so we are increasingly sites where you have these incredibly diverse and interesting student bodies and particularly stand as a place that is different from the growing sorting that we're seeing in American society, where people are growing up in settings where they're around people who think the same way, who have the same Mm. political affiliations, the same worldviews, and so forth, that, you know, in the absence of national service, without without a national mandatory draft, you know, we're not seeing these places where young adults are being forced to congregate together. A university is that. And so the question that I ask is, are we doing as much as we can to really get the benefits of this incredible diversity? So we've got we've got representational diversity, but do we truly have um, the kinds of interactions and um, and engagements across uh, differences? And as, as you cite, one of the things that I think is really striking to see over the last several decades, the extent to which one of the crucial moments when you first enter the university um, is getting your room assignment, which typically means that you share a room with one, two, or three other students. And for the last uh, for, for the last several years, we've been allowing students increasingly before they come to university to choose their own roommates. And surprise, surprise, when they do that in advance of coming to the university, they choose students who look just like them. So this is this this moment, it's just a lost moment where if we um, deprive students of that ability and say, no, we'll do, we'll do the matching, I think you can uh, create um, uh, opportunities for people to, to interact with and, and, and confront difference that again, uh, we know from the work that's been done this, it uh, provides lasting effects in terms of the way in which students who've had that experience um, become, again, better Mm. democratic citizens uh, upon leaving university. So I think that's a crucial moment. The Mm. other other, um, place in which um, I think we have fallen short is around the speech, uh, the, 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 the speech crises that we've seen where you know, very often um, we have these controversies arise when provocative speakers are brought onto campus. And then this is this moment where we're testing the institution's commitment to free speech and the concerns about uh, the 
discomfort, if not the hurt that uh, certain speakers will uh, inflict on the campus when they espouse their views. And again, I think that that that's an that um, that uh, practice um, or pattern has, um, I think, obscured the role that we could play, in fact, taking a more purposeful approach to thinking about how we get people um, who are different in their views and their, um, their commitments to debate one another. And to, again, instead of just thinking about single person events where a, a, a speaker comes to campus, you start thinking about how you can design these events where you're, you're, you're very intentionally creating moments of debate and exchange and giving um, the speakers and indeed we as educators, the opportunity to remind students about how one manages these uh, differences and try, and try and kind of instill a sense of the enterprise of civic friendship that you hope you're able to create where even across profound differences of outlook, such as represented um, uh, um, among our students on campuses, that you're still able to find comedy. And, and that requires hard work. And I think a shift in orientation about how the university thinks about its role. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that I don't like in the debate about free speech is that we talk about the exchange of ideas uh, and you don't, you talk about the engagement of ideas and which is much closer to my own mind view. I think the important thing is less who speaks and more who's listening and how do we construct ways in which we listen. And you talk about how, you know, solo professor, speaker, who can speak, this, who can, you know, he or she can speak, yes or no. And you actually say that the university's become the referee but I think what you're arguing for, and this is not a word you use, but it's almost you almost want to become more of a regulator than a referee and to find ways to regulate these engagements. So try to find two people to speak. And it's just only striking me now as I think about it that actually in my world now, which is the sort of think tank world, the standard approach is a panel, right? And there's lots of jokes about panels. You know, you get paneled to death and all that. But, you know... Um, and actually, but what's interesting about a panel is that you then deliberately choose people who are not going to agree with each other. The whole point of a panel discussion as opposed to a speech, right, is that you have that. And so, whereas that seems quite unusual in, in universities, like a panel discussion is a really rare thing at university. And very often they bring in think tank people to do it. And I read you as saying that should become much more the norm. It's far better to have two or three voices rather than just the solitary teaching voice so that you're forced, you're forced to engage, basically. I, I think that's right. I mean, there are moments when you do have uh, panels on, you know, in, in, in the university, not surprisingly. But but again, um, I think a lot of the the lar the 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 the, uh, the events that are large scale where lots of students will come on to, you know, typically are single speaker. And um, and so, again, we can expect our students to break out of the you know, the mold of a society that is deeply distrustful and riven by deep political conflict, unless we can show them the path out of this. And I just think these are, you know, you said, um, you know, that these are moments to regulate. I, I fundamentally, I think these are moments to educate and to really inspire students to see the power of this kind of uh, of engagement and 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 the opportunity 
to really um, understand what it is that we are truly um, disputing and where, you know, maybe more careful reasoning or additional facts might actually narrow the, the space uh, between us. And, and again, I think at this point in American society, these are essential skills. And, you know, given that 70% of students graduating from high school will go on a post-secondary education. This again represents an important site for this kind of, um, of activity to take place. And again, I don't think it's quixotic to say that this could play a role in just turning down uh, the temperature of the very intense uh, polarization that we're confronting now in America. Well, at one point you say in the book that, of course, this is not the whole answer, but it's part of the answer. And I think that's the point is that all the institutions that we're involved in have to sort of do their part uh, to, to, to try and solve some of these problems. And I love the idea of dialogues across difference. So, well, thank you again for, for coming on. Your book, uh, Ron Daniels, is What Universities Owe Democracy. Loved the book. Really enjoyed this conversation. Um, very impressed and inspired in part by the work you're doing. So thanks again for joining me on Dialogues. Thanks. It's been a terrific conversation and uh, uh, really enjoyed the opportunity to work through some of these issues with you. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.